No, it's student takeover. So as I was uh, kind of debating on what, what to speak about, uh, Jerry and I kind of had a conversation. He said, you know, there's, there's some Sundays where everything just kind of comes together perfectly, and then there's others where you just got to kind of fight. You just got to kind of figure out what, what does the Lord want to use on this day. And as I was thinking about that, I, I had the thought that, you know, for a lot of us in here, we're being, we were raised in a very different world than our students are being raised in today. I mean, if you think about 30 or 40 years ago, how the world looked and how people interacted and conversations and, and all of those things, our students are in a completely different place. I mean, at, at times it almost doesn't even feel like earth. Oh, do you talk to that person regularly? Oh, yeah, we DM, right? We, we text. Well, when was the last time you like saw them face-to-face? I don't even actually know them. I've never actually met them face-to-face. I mean, how many, how many times would that happen back in 1982? Never. It's not a thing. Kids today just live in a very different world. As we approached 2019, I was thinking about all the pressures that high school graduates have. Did you know that today, 70% of kids that graduate high school will go to college? 70%. Now, think about your days when you graduated high school. Some of you, that was a long time ago right? There was a percentage out there back, I think, in the 70s, about 40% went to college. So if you think about that, 40% and today, 70%, think about the amount of pressure that's on a high school senior. Even more pressure. Think about that high school freshman. I remember going into my freshman year, and I took college preparatory classes, and I remember thinking, yeah, that's like forever away. Now, parents, you can agree with me, when they're in their freshman year, Everything is, you got to do it right. You got to do it right because college is here, because college is here, because college is here. Like it's here. And I just think about that pressure that's added on to this generation behind us. Our world today, speaking of difference, has more nonprofit and social justice organizations than at any time before. If you look at America as a whole, there is no other time in our history where have, have existed this many nonprofit and social justice organizations. They did a study recently asking people across generations the importance of when you find a job, is it, important, is it more important to find a meaningful job or to find a job that makes a lot of money? The answer is kind of surprised me. 48% of baby, baby boomers said it's super important, more important to find a meaningful job than it is to find a job that pays really well. Generation X, 38% said it's really important to find a job that has much more meaning than pay. And our famous millennials, the ones that get the short end of the stick of every joke right now, 30% say that it's much more important to find a meaningful career than it is to find one that pays really well. I think I want to challenge our hearts on something this morning. I want us to look in Scripture, and I want us to challenge our hearts, because I know that I have to do this to myself, but I think many of us have mistaken our calling. I think oftentimes when we think about what's this calling in our life, we go, man, well, education is important. Supporting your family is important. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, protect yourself by investing into yourself, by getting a great education, getting a great job, and then after you've built up stockpiles 
of protection. Then and only then, love your neighbor. Because I think in many ways, that's, that's what we kind of teach. That's what, you know, I know to a certain degree, I'm thinking about my children as I raise them. What am I, think, what am I teaching Micah and Maggie? And certainly education is going to be up there. And certainly having a great job is going to be up there. But hopefully at the end of the day, at the end of the 18 years they live under my roof, I hope they don't leave my house going, wow, daddy really wants me to just have a great job and have a safe life. Because what I really want for them, what I really want for your students in this room is that I want them, above everything else, to follow the call of God on their life. And unfortunately, what that means for some, what that might mean for me as a parent, is that our children may go into questionable areas of life. Missionaries happen. People go overseas, and they don't just go to this gorgeous area of life, into all safe places of life, and I'm sure there are parents when they think, ooh, I want to raise my kids. Most parents don't say, ooh, I want to raise a, a kid who's going to go live for Christ and he's going to go live or she's going to go live in a third world country where they're put in danger every single day. But if I was to ask the same question, would you want your child to follow God's calling? Oh, absolutely I do. I just don't want that to be God's calling. I get that tension. I completely, 100%, understand it. But just as JC read to us this morning, what we need to do to our lives and to our children's lives is read Psalms 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. In you I trust. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. I want to look at a, at a weird passage, at a passage that I don't know that I've actually ever heard preached before. I'm sure it has been preached before, but it's a passage that's kind of abstract for this setting, but I think it holds a lot of value and a lot of meaning for what we're going to talk about this morning when we look at our calling in life. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, and a native of Pontus. He recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. What I find interesting about this passage, this is written by Dr. Luke, as some call him Luke, writing the, the book of Acts, recording the first Acts of the church, the Acts of the Apostles, he begins this sentence with, after this. Well, what is, what is after this? Well, this is a very important segue for us to completely understand what this setup for Paul is. After this, Paul. What after this means is after this, Paul used to be a guy named Saul. Before this, his name was Saul. Now, Saul was a man of much wealth, but he was also a tax collector. He was a guy that a lot of people didn't like. A lot of people were scared of. He held the coats of the first uh, people that killed the first Christian martyr. And here's Saul, who is out there basically ravaging the church. And he's just going about his business on the road to Damascus, and he has this interaction with Jesus, and his life is completely changed in that moment. And in that moment, he repents from everything that he ever thought he knew, and he turns to Jesus. He turns 
to following a Lord where that Lord's, none of his people trusted him. Think about that. Every single person that had followed Jesus up to this point knew the name Saul and they were scared of him. They didn't trust him at all. And Saul follows Jesus and turns around and begins to try to witness to people about Jesus and about the importance of who Jesus is. And he tries to befriend some of these same people that were scared of him. And he, he goes on doing this and he travels around the world making disciples and telling people about Jesus. He ends up uh, healing people. He ends up being thrown in jail. And while in jail, he goes to convert the jailers to follow Jesus. Think about that for those of you that have been to jail. How many of you were thinking about, ooh, I really want to really make sure my guards know Jesus. You're just thinking about how the heck to get out of there. You know, and, and the jail today is very different than the jail that he, he probably went to. Imagine that situation. But yet he's in there and he's like, ooh, I really care about their souls. Not my next meal. I'm not worried about when I get out. I'm just really worried about their souls. And this is Saul. His, his name changes to Paul. And that's where we pick up in this after this. He had done all of this in his life to this point. And after this, he settles down because he was of the same trade. He meets these new people, and they're very similar to him. In the Jewish tradition, as a, as a good father, you would teach your child some of the trades, some of the things that you knew. So, so most likely, Paul learned this act of tent making from his father. And so he knew how to make a, a living, make a, a wage in his life. And so he hung out there for a little while. My question is, why is this important to the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles? Why did God, through Luke, feel that it's so important for us to understand that Paul was this crazy guy, he gave his life to Jesus, he follows Jesus, he does a lot of really cool stuff, and then after this, he gets to this place, he settles down for a little bit, and he makes tents. Some would say it's so that he could raise money so that he could then go do more missions, but I don't believe that's the actual case. I believe what Paul was actually doing is Paul was using his calling in a different fashion than he had used it before. See, the calling for him was always the same, but the path looked different. I believe that God, through Luke, wants us to see that as we follow Christ, our paths may look different. Your path may look different than my path, and my path different than her path or his path, but all paths will lead to the same place. Let me unpack what, what I mean by that. When I was 20 years old, I started working at uh, a dealership as a mechanic. I had only been a Christian for about a year. I worked in a different shop, and then I transferred to this new shop, and I get to this place, and there's probably 75 employees there. It's a, it's a, it's a big dealership in the Atlanta area. And, and I'm working in there, and I, and I can remember having a conversation kind of with myself, going, what is my, what is my actions, what is my life going to look like at this dealership? Because for those of you that work in a secular organization, and especially one that, of a of, of, kind of a, a large population like that where you interact with people daily, you know that there's some trying and tempting times. Let me, under, let me kind of help you understand what I mean. So I worked as a mechanic, but I also made commission off of sales. So a, a vehicle would come into my bay, I'd check it over, and then I'd go to the service advisor and I'd say, hey man, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And if X, Y, and Z sold, I'd make a commission off of that. And then I'd usually get to do the service. If not, I'd send it to someone else and get the next one in my shop. 
And so what happened in, in our industry is there was three or four of us that kind of did the same entry work. We're a very small level mechanic. A lot of times there's oil chain stuff and tire rotations and putting tires on and mounting a balance and, you know, whatever, all that gear talk, right? Well, there's a way to cheat the system and look in, in the system to go, wow, that car's only got 10,000 miles. I'm not going to make any money on it. The next car's got 85,000. I might be able to make some money on it. And, and the longer you work there, the more you meet the customers and the people, and you get to go, oh, that guy's got money. That guy's broke. It doesn't matter what I do for him. He ain't doing nothing, right? Or that, that woman's going to have to call her husband. That's the excuse she's going to give me every time. Like, it's just, it's just what happens. And so what you do in the industry is you, you start looking ahead at the cars. And maybe if you got the car that's next in line, that's not going to make any money, maybe you just work a little slower. Work a little slower so that that cat over there will get it, and then you'll get the really good job. Well, I was convicted about that. I was convicted that everyone around me was doing that, and so I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability no matter what. And it stunk because you get jobs in there that you weren't going to make any money and you're going to work longer than you should have, but you're going to do it. And I did that time and time and time and over again. But you know what I came to find out is at the end of the day, somehow, some way, some shape or form, I guess the blessing of the Lord, I started getting the right cars in. I ended up making more commission than the two or three other guys next to me. I ended up winning the approval of all my service advisors, which means when I say, hey, this person needs it, the service advisor is going to sell it. There's no, there's no question about it. He's going to say, oh, I trust Chris. I found that over time, instead of letting classic rock or country music play in my stall, which there's nothing wrong with that, I love both of them, I made a, de I made a determination in my life that I'm going to play Christian music because I'm in an area where there's not a whole lot of Jesus. And I, I, I can take one little small step of listening to Christian music all day, and that one little small step may make someone pause for a second. It may make them just step back and, why the heck is this dude acting the way he is. Now, don't get me wrong, I was not perfect at this dealership. I got mad at people, you know, you know how work is. But what I did know, what I did, what I did t take a step back and look, and I analyzed this with my wife and a few friends, of saying, what would happen if we lived our lives for less about the money and more about how Jesus would want us to work on our job? What if every opportunity we had at work, we took this opportunity to kind of propel the gospel, to, to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean get rolled over, but that does mean, you know, instead of working a little slower to get the, the, the car that I really wanted, I just do what I do. I just do the job, and I trust in the Lord. Many of you heard it time and again, but Matthew 28, I, I think it's really, import really important for us to understand this passage, because here stands not the dead Jesus but the risen from the dead Jesus talking to his disciples and these are people that would be right now very uh, intent on listening to him think about that a guy was dead and now he's no longer dead and now he's talking to me think about where you would be on the edge of your seat right you would be what you would be paying attention you'd be leaned in and Jesus looked at them and says and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is where the path leads. 
This is the calling of a Christ follower. To come and die and to make disciples of all nations. It's not necessarily just to live this great moral life, which I, if you ever take a step back and, and reflect, and just think about, man, how, am I a good person? Am I doing what God has called me to do? I think we have a tendency to answer those questions with, am I a good moral person? How is my language? How are the spiritual disciplines in my life? Have I read my Bible regularly? Have I prayed enough? Do I trust and obey? Jesus calls this inspecting fruit, and he talks about how this is how we are to be known in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What if our fruits weren't exactly good behavior? What if our fruits wasn't just, ooh, I didn't cuss that much today. Ooh, I didn't look at that thing that I shouldn't have looked at today. Ooh, that addiction that I've got, I've kind of I've pushed that aside. What if, our, what if our fruits reflected more of this calling by Jesus of, have you made disciples? Have you made disciples? What if instead of asking questions about our moral activity or our spiritual disciplines, we started asking the question of whether or not we were actually making disciples. See, in our, in our culture, in, in church today, we, we've changed this view of following Jesus to coming in on a Sunday morning, sitting in a seat, hearing a band, listening to a sermon, and exiting. And everything else is a spiritual discipline or just a moral habit in your life. That's where we kind of whittled things down to. And, and I'm not trying to say that a great moral character is a bad thing or regular spiritual disciplines are a bad thing because I think both are very important. But what does it say as a Christ follower if I have a great moral attitude? If, if people look at my life and go, man, that's, a, that's just a good dude. He says the right things, doesn't watch the wrong things. He's always around the right people. He reads his Bible, he prays. But then when I look a little deeper, well, how many, how many other people's lives has I affected? How many other people's lives have I spurred on to walk with Jesus closer? And am I just going to take that part of Scripture and, and, and set it to the side and say, I'll, I'll get to it one day? Because we've all been tasked with that work. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. See, in the modern church, we have a tendency to be receivers 
and consumers, and we like to leave this work of the ministry up to the professional Christians. And this isn't just coming from a guy who's a pastor, because, again, I haven't always been a pastor. I completely, 100% understand the point, well, I've got kids, I've got family, I've got coaching responsibilities, I've got hobbies, I've got PTSA board, I've got, I got my time, I've got sleep, I've got all these other things. And what my, what my thing is today is the calling of Christ should permeate through every single aspect of our lives. Part of the reason we started talking about this idea of home as, as, as a church is because we started recognizing that people could walk in our doors and outside of the staff, who else is engaging people? Who else is really feeling the responsibility of, of talking to somebody? Because you have a great staff and, and you know, they're phenomenal. We're phenomenal. But here's the deal. I can't know every single person in this room. I can't tend to every single person in this room's needs. I can't know every time you're possibly sick or there's a, there's a hospital visit thing going on or, or there's something going on in your life. And you, I, can't, I don't know every single thing. But what if the body of Christ came alongside of each other and the people in the room on a Sunday morning began to feel this responsibility for each other? And we knew when someone else was going on, we, we told each other and we prayed for them and we met the needs of each other as opposed to just waiting on professionals to do the deal. But we, as a home, decided, you know what, I'm going to push back from the table, as Jerry has said so often. I'm going to push back from the table so that someone else can come and sit and enjoy. That's part of what we try to talk with the students today about the student takeover, is your job today is not to be about you. I said, I need 30 minutes, is what I told them. I said, I need 30 minutes from you out there. Don't talk to your friend. Don't even look at them. You're here to make sure that every guest that walks through this door this morning feels at home. Treat it like Chick-fil-A. My pleasure. Every time. Walk them through. It should be like Disney World. And they walk in, you know, you should be, can I get you anything, sir? A beverage? You know, I mean, that's just, that's, that's how we as a people should kind of be with each other. When you come to my house, hopefully I don't just say, Hey, what's up? Hopefully I make you feel at home. And that's kind of why we, we went on this, because we saw as, just a, as a staff and as a church that sometimes we have a tendency, and not just we, but like the collective church in Western society that has a tendency to become very stage-focused. And we don't want to be stage-focused. We, we want to be people-focused. We want the person on your left and right to feel welcomed, not just by us, but by you as well. As I was talking about this with Ben and Jerry this week, that's a good flavor ice cream, by the way. Um, as I was talking about this, I, I came up with this, this illustration to, to try to nail this point down in, in my head because I'm a very visual person. I started thinking, what if there's this one river in our life? There's this, there's this river in which everything in this river glorifies God. It brings him joy, it brings him happiness, it brings him attention, it brings him blessings, it ministers to him. This, this is the glory of God. This, this is everything that points to him. And see, as Christians, we're supposed to be kind of floating on that river. 
just left, right, just floating down easy street. But what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to start focusing on the trees and all the beautiful landscape over there. And there's nothing wrong with the, the trees and the landscape because they just bring God glory. But what we do is we kind of we take a, a hard left and we start going to the side and then we, we start digging a little trench out. We start making this little trench and, and whatever happens when you dig a trench and there's water, the water starts flowing over there. And so we make this, this second little river over here, this little creek. And this is our creek. And, it, and it's kind of, it begins to run alongside of God's glory. And see, what happens is we're supposed to be floating on this, this river of God's glory, but we've, we've created our own little version of our own glory river. And that's, that's where our work falls. That's where some of our relationships fall. That's where the busy times fall. And see, this river over here is not pouring into the glory of God. This river over here is just, just the stuff of life. It, it's just us just doing us. And it's not necessarily intentional. But this is where we get. We start digging this river and we get farther in and farther in and farther in. And then before we know it, we're looking over and we're like, where's the other river? Where's the glory of God? I don't even feel his presence anymore, it's because you're floating in stagnant water. You're floating in water that's all about you. And I think the call of God for us is to take back, fill that river, and go back to the original river and go, when I'm on this river, the job that I work, is supposed to bring God glory. Is it supposed to bring me money? Hopefully. If you're working for no pay, we have a, an, an issue, right? But you should be bringing God glory through your work. You were created for work. That was before the fall. We were, we were to work the land. So we were created for work. So that work is supposed to bring God glory. And then our relationships to bring God glory. Our conversations should bring God glory. The things that we walk, the entertainment should bring God glory. We should fill that other river with dirt and the dead things that live over there and go, I want to live on the healthy fertile river, and I want to enjoy all of God's creation. But this is where I want to live. This is the calling of my life, is to, no matter what the actual calling of your job is, whether you're a nurse, or a teacher, or a real estate person, or just a salesperson who drives endlessly throughout your week, your calling as a Christ follower, is to make disciples of all nations. And Paul, using his tent-making business, sees an opportunity to connect with people that he would otherwise never have connected with. Think about all the people in your job that you speak with that never darken the door of a church. Think about all the people that you speak with at that sports team or the club that you hang out at or whatever else thing you have going on in your life. Think about all the people in your world that never darken the door of a church, that don't necessarily have a relationship with Jesus. How could your life make an impact in theirs by you simply accepting the call of making disciples and seeing every opportunity 
to tell them about Jesus, to play the Christian music in your bay, to instead of cheating someone out of a great deal, you just kind of just do your job, to instead of being focused on our river and our success over here, we say, God, I'm going to trust in you. How different could our world look? In just a minute, we're going to have a time of response, and we're going to sing a new song. And I always know new songs and response is kind of weird because y'all don't know the song, and so you just stand there staring at the screen or Brooks or whoever else. But I don't want it to be that awkward. What I want today is I want us to answer the question of just internally of where are you putting your time, your talents, and your treasures? Have you completely invested into yourself and you're saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to make sure that that job to me, the pay is the most important aspect, not meaning. Or are you going to say, you know what, I may be mistaken my calling. And no matter what career I'm actually working, I could be bringing God glory in these ways. And I need to repent of that. And just have a conversation with the Lord. Our, our hope and desire for your students is that they understand no matter what that next step is, whether it's college or the workforce or armed services, that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that their calling in this world is not to go and just make a lot of money or use this, I like, we, we use this phrase a lot in church world, go make an impact. It's, it's a great phrase, but it's vague. There's a lot of people that have made an impact that don't know anything about Jesus. We want your students to know that they have a calling on their life as Christ followers to go and make disciples. And when we make disciples by connecting with people, by talking with them about Jesus, by, by seeing our job as just a different path that all leads to the same place of the kingdom of God. And that's what we need to do. And that happens when we, as a church, and leadership, and adults, and parents, model that. I can preach it to Micah and Maggie all day long. But their example of faith will be seen when they look at me. There's nothing to repeat. That was a great bottom line. They'll see it. They'll see faith. They'll understand faith when they look at me and Amy. That's what faith will mean to them. What we say it is and they see it, that's their understanding of faith. Let me pray.